in this episode of Boss Files. You don't love the spotlight. I don't love the spotlight. I'm here because people told me it'd be good for CCI. <laughs> no one's ever been that candid with me in an interview. Dr. Priscilla Chan. You may not know her name, but we think you should. At just 33 years old, she's leading what may just turn out to be the biggest change agent in Silicon Valley, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. CZI's goals are anything but modest, advancing human potential and promoting equal opportunity while curing, preventing, or managing all disease by the end of the century. We are about building an aspirational future that everyone's excited about. Everyone ranging from the most fortunate kid to the kids that I try to, to serve and continue to try to serve and the clinic or at the school. We want that to be a future that is incredible. So we're building that. But we have to be cognizant about how we make sure that the opportunity to access that is equal. Chan is the wife of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, but her profile is rising and not because of whom she's married to. And the fact that she's sitting here today, a Palo Alto valedictorian, pediatrician, entrepreneur, billionaire, and mother of two, is in her words, a miracle. She was born to refugee parents in low-income housing in Quincy, Massachusetts. She landed at Harvard on a full scholarship. And the rest, as they say, is history. Here's my conversation with Dr. Priscilla Chan. So let's begin with this. You call it a miracle that you're sitting here today. Why is it a miracle? My whole life, if you just stopped it in that first day that I got to Harvard, I would have lived the fullest version of the American dream. My family, uh, my grandparents were business people in Saigon. The war hit, mm -hmm. they were persecuted. The only way out was to put their children on boats and send them off to sea and hopefully they find opportunity on the other side, not knowing where they were gonna go. And where that path led us was actually the fact that people opened up their doors to refugees in the 70s and my family ended up in Quincy, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And my parents worked as a waiter and as an accountant and they didn't go to college. Did they speak English when they came here? Didn't speak English. Wow. Um, and, but they had one beacon. It's like education was the pathway to a better future. For you? For me. And so they did what they could to make it happen. And my teachers in the public schools took me the rest of the way. Hmm. Um, my teachers were like, you're gonna go to college. You need to go take the SATs. I told my mom, she's like, I don't know what the SATs are, but do you need a ride? Wow. And she gave me a ride. And um, before you know it, I, my teachers, my family had put me on a path to showing up at Harvard Yard, first generation to college. Your parents, refugees to this country, um, worked a lot so that you could have this, so that you could achieve this. What was your early life like, Priscilla? Um, you said they were working in restaurants. You know, obviously, I, I assume you had to become really independent really young. Yeah, I was always the caregiver. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, once in a lecture in medical school, uh, we had a speaker come and say, what is your first memory? And my first memory was when my mom was in the hospital having giving birth to my sister. And I remember this feeling of obligation of wanting to take care of my grandparents who lived with me and was taking care of me. You felt like you needed to take care of your grandparents. Yes. Um, and I'm two and a half years older than my sister. I just remember pulling up a stool to wash the dishes because that's what my mom did. How old were you at this time? Two and a half. And I was like trying, <laughs> my grandmother tells the story of me trying to do the dishes and take care of her. Um, and um, her really just laughing at me. But in so many ways, I felt responsible for my family as the one who um, was born in this country and had so much more responsibility and opportunity. Uh, I translated for my grandparents who didn't speak English. Right. Um, I helped my family and parents understand what I needed and therefore how they could help me. That, I mean, we both have, I have a two and a half year old, your oldest is? Two and a half. Yeah. All right, so yeah. we both have two and a half year olds who do not pull stools up to the sink and help with the dishes. I mean, their reality, frankly, Priscilla, is so different than anything that you had. That's also a lot of pressure. 
from a really young age for you? I just, it's the firstborn mentality, but firstborn on steroids because um, you're the hope and dream for a refugee family. Is that how you felt, the hope and dream for your, for your grandparents who were illiterate? Yeah. Your parents who didn't speak English when they came here, you felt like that for them? Of course, yes. I know that your grandmother specifically had this profound impact on you and, and taught you a lot about seeing the world. Can you tell me about her? My grandmother um, was a feminist before feminism was a word. Um, She ran a business in Saigon, um, a restaurant, and was one of the first women to get their driver's license. And uh, she also just believed in um, what was possible for us. And she had, there were no limits to what was possible for each one of her grandkids. And she, also reminded us that there are so many more perspectives and different ways people could be living their lives. Mm. Because she lived an incredible life, Mm. um, going from being um, a independent leader in her community in Saigon Mm -hmm. to surviving the war, coming to this country as a refugee, and then seeing like what our lives were like. And so she always reminded us to like, try to walk in someone else's shoes for a moment, see what that's like build that empathy Um, and at first she built that into our lives through travel Mm -hmm. she wanted to see where our roots were and um, where our family came from and but that's for me evolved into always asking the question like what did that person that what did that student what did that patient go through this morning before they Mm -hmm. got to you Mm -hmm. Um, take that bigger picture of what it's like to live life in their shoes before you try to really say anything or help them in any way or um, hopefully not judge them in any way. You grew up uh, in Quincy, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. outside of Boston, in low-income housing. Um, And you've said that you you often felt like an outsider growing up. Why? I think a lot of kids of immigrants and um, feel this way. It's you're bridging between two worlds. Um, the world at home and uh, the world at school. I lived in a predominantly Irish Catholic community. I thought everyone did Irish step dance. Um, And I just didn't understand the culture, the customs, the rules, and uh, a sleepover at someone else's house. Not normal? Why would you sleep at someone else's house? Really? Like, you have your own house, and that is dangerous. Um, And so... The awareness comes from both always being the interpreter for my family, um, but also uh, with that lens, seeing like just how different my life is, our family and our values than what I see on on, at least on the outside for other people. You talk a lot about luck and you don't seem to like luck much. I mean, you have said over and over again, luck should not be a factor. And if you succeed for you, luck was a factor. It seems incredibly unjust and uh, wasted opportunity in our country that people need to get lucky to have access to opportunities. Mm -hmm. If you are um, in a underrepresented or historically marginalized community, you don't know, you don't even know where the door is to opportunity. You, if you get lucky, someone leads you there, you happen upon it, you get access, but it's not a given. And I am where I am today because I got lucky enough to have teachers and mentors that guided me towards those windows of opportunity. Mm-hmm. But so many people who are able and um, have enormous potential don't have that opportunity, and that's not okay. We need to build systems that don't require one to be lucky to be able to reach their full mm-hmm. potential. You've said, Priscilla, the systems that are supposed to help families like mine don't work very well in America don't work very well in America. How are we, even today in 2018, failing so many of our children? Each one of these systems, parent support, education, healthcare, has the best of intentions. And oftentimes, um, they produce good results, but only when one of those people on the front lines, whether it's a teacher, it's a physician, or a social worker, becomes a superhero. They muscle their way across silos to really get all the people in the right room to make something happen for a student. 
and those superheroes mm -hmm. are what makes the systems work, but that's, that's not right. We need to redesign the way uh, a school is able to access and learn from what the physicians know about a family. Make sure that like, the adult services that we have around um, social workers, around mental health, really surround a mm -hmm. child rather than force a child and a family to need to know what they need and seek out these individual supports mm -hmm. in a way that's really challenging. Which is what you've done with the primary school that we had a chance to visit yesterday, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but then you land in Harvard Yard. And what do you think on that first day at Harvard, Priscilla? Harvard was so hard for me. Um, I showed up and I just felt like a failure. At Harvard? Yes. I just felt like I didn't belong. I wasn't, my, my one sh skill set of being smart, I wasn't smart there anymore. I, um, I never, I didn't fit in. Kids, um, all the kids were saying so the right, same things, dressing the same way, saying words I didn't understand. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't belong here. I actually filled out my transfer paperwork to, to leave. You did? I did. Even today, this great success story brings tears to your eyes. Oh, it was so hard. Um, and so I, I, I was ready to leave, and, um, but I was like, well, while I was still there, I thought, well, I might as well do something with my time here. I, uh, I decided to volunteer, yeah. and I worked at a low-income housing project right next door to where I grew up. And um, that's where I realized that just how lucky I was and that other kids weren't going to have those opportunities and I needed to stay the, at Harvard and succeed so that I could be part of unlocking those doors for others. So that you could change the trajectory of those kids' lives, Yeah, you know, in that, in that housing project. More from my exclusive interview with Dr. Priscilla Chan after the break. So, so your time at Harvard and you're working and volunteering in, in the low-income housing there, and you meet a child who changes your life forever. Yeah. Who did you meet? I, well, we took care of about maybe 10 kids, um, and they, I want to say they're all special, and um, I still have pictures of them in my living room. And, but there was one moment with a little girl that just made me realize that I need to do more. And I thought at the time, I am, I am not enough yet. I need more skills. I need more understanding of the problem to be able to solve the problem. And I met a little girl. She's uh, 10 years old. And I, she, she and her brother were both in the after-school program. And she was one week missing from the after-school program. And her, someone, her school counselor came to the after-school program looking for her. And I said, well, I haven't seen her, but I'll help you look. And I just like walked out to uh, the playground in the housing project, and I found her. I was kind of upset when I found her, but then when she ta started talking, I saw that her two front teeth were broken. And I was devastated. I thought, what happened? What did I do wrong? Thinking, what did you do wrong? Like, what, did I miss something that led her to actually get hurt? And if not, like, how could I have done my part to prevent this? And, and just angry at the set of circumstances that led her to get hurt. And so I, that compelled me to think, I gotta think bigger, I need more skills, I need more power to be able to solve this. And so when you're 20 years old and um, a type A Harvard student, um, the answer is medical school. <laughs> what did you say to her? This, here's this little 10-year-old girl um, and she's now, you know, has her two front teeth that are broken, so she's not going to school, right? I'm sure she's embarrassed and in pain. What did you say to her when you found her? I actually don't remember saying anything to her. I just remember, like, physically hugging her and just cleaning her up and caring for her. I, re I distinctly remember cleaning her off in the bathroom and just trying to figure out what the right next steps were. Has that been the most profound moment in your life, aside obviously from your own children, 
but the moment that has had the most profound effect on you in terms of the professional choices you've made with what to do with your life? I still remember that moment with anguish and anger and uh, a desire to fight so that other kids aren't like that, mm-hmm. aren't, aren't in that situation. And, um, and that over time and getting to know so many more children is that and the love and the wonder and hope that children give you compel me to do my work every single day. So that's what drove you to go to medical school to mm-hmm. become a pediatrician. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about that time? I loved medical school and residency. Um, it's so fun um, in that, like, you get to study. I'd love to go back to school and study. <laughs> really? Yes. I was, I was, I was a straight A student, but I wouldn't want to go back there. Right? <laughs> like, it was so much pressure for me. Yeah, I. I, even to this day in my work, when it's like a learning session, I like sit back, I open my notebook, I'm like, I'm taking notes. It's, I love learning. Um, but medical school was um, a place where the challenge mm-hmm. of learning in school was approachable because I had learned so much about how to do that mm-hmm. at Harvard. And it was coupled with like being able to like really walk in other people's shoes and understand their lives and a chance to actually help them. Yeah, and being able to actually build a skill set mm-hmm. and help people um, feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's not just like the prescription, it's being part of someone's healing that was such a great experience. You also said that once you became a doctor, you realized that there were no prescriptions for what you saw some of these kids going through. Yeah. I thought by becoming a doctor, I could help that student in the playground in the low-income housing project. And here I was as a primary care doctor in taking care of the same kids, but now in San Francisco. I saw the same kids. I saw the same problems, and I was still unable to make a difference. I was had all the right words to describe it. Um, but no way to actually reach out from the clinic to actually make it better. And at one point, after you'd been a teacher and after you had become a doctor, you you said something that strikes me so much, and you said, I felt like a failure as a pediatrician, and I felt like a failure as a teacher. Yeah. How can that be? I'm trying to make a difference and unlock opportunities for kids' lives. And... That is really hard to do. You can't, like, in the clinic, you're looking at this little sliver of a child's life. Through teaching, you have so many responsibilities, and you're really only there for a third of a kid's day. And what we really need to think about is how do we work across teams, and how do we actually build up those supports in a kid's life beyond what any one role or job is, to be able to support the child and their family mm-hmm. to actually be able to succeed. And I couldn't do that as a pediatrician, um, giving vaccines, treating asthma exacerbations, treating ear infections. I couldn't do that when I was responsible for homework help or in the classroom. And that was because you were always putting band-aid on band-aids on things and the system there was no wind at your back the systems weren't helping you actually do your job better so your vision and what you built out of your residency we talked to dr mcnamara who was your mentor and and who you worked side by side with in your residency which is where the idea for the primary school came about Mm -hmm. how did you think of it because that brings these worlds together right that brings education and medical true whole medical care Mm -hmm. together i started it like every other project or program that a doctor thinks about. I did a literature review. I was like, what else is other people doing? I need to learn from others. And I started looking through the research and finding that there wasn't very much. It's a very early field and um, that there are some best practices in early childhood, um, 
family support, education, mm -hmm. but no one was really bringing that together. And so I started going around talking about like, what if we could really think about the primary care team, the school team, um, parent support as one holistic team? How would that look different? Mm -hmm. um, and a, a, a bunch of mentors and smart people started um, giving me ideas and working with me and I selling a dream is really what I was doing selling a dream yeah but now that dream is a brick-and-mortar dream and mm -hmm. it's a school with how many kids it depends on how you count but 250 Wow. and they're lucky they're very lucky to have this um, can it work with scale Priscilla can can this idea of melding holistic full medical care with the best education you know, can, can all American kids most in need get it? That's the dream. We don't want this to be one special school with 250 lucky kids. That's not okay. The dream is really to study our work and to understand how can we share this with others. We're a small school, but we actually have three people studying what we're doing and if we're having the effect that we want. Looking at the numbers, looking at the data. Yes, making sure that we're having impact and if we are, what is making the difference so that we can share that with other schools and other clinics. Um, and that's really important to us. When you look big picture at all that you've done with your life and with the primary school and here at, at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, CZI, where we are, it comes down to quality. And it reminds me a lot of Bill and Melinda Gates and, and what they say as well all lives have equal value. I mean, that's really what it boils down to, right, is true equality for everyone. We want to make sure that every kid has the opportunity to thrive and succeed. Every kid. So that brings us here to mm -hmm. where we are today, CZI, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. What's your mission? We want to make sure that we're building a better future for everyone. No small feat. <laughs> yeah, but we, it's, <laughs> it sounds incredible until you realize that we're not doing it alone. And Fair. we are try to be very thoughtful about what our piece is and making sure that um, we're working with others. The official mission statement to advance human potential and promote equality for all children in the next generation. How do we get to equal? What do you need? I think about it in two parts. We are about building an aspirational future that everyone's excited about. Anyone, ev everyone ranging from the most fortunate kid to the kids that I try to, to serve and continue to try to serve in the clinic or at the school. We, we want that to be a future that is incredible. So we're building that. But we have to be cognizant about how we make sure that the opportunity to access that is equal. There are some kids that are on a moving walkway and they're gonna get there. There are other kids that are going the wrong way on an escalator. Mm. And so we need to make sure our work is oriented towards one, creating that future, and two, making sure that we build a pathway for those who are historically underserved or marginalized to be able to get to that future that we think all children deserve. You and Mark have committed how much of your wealth to this? Almost all of it, 99%. 99%. Mm -hmm. So this will be funded with billions and billions of dollars. That's right. Where'd the idea come from? We decided to commit and that we needed to like take action when we were waiting for Max to be born. But the idea that we were gonna give back is actually much older than that. Um, it, when Mark first got an offer to sell Facebook, um, I was, remember that. Yes, maybe two thousand six, two thousand five. Yeah. It was going to be a lot of money, and it was the first time we realized that, oh my God, we have this incredible opportunity to give back, and we started thinking through like, what would we do if you sold Facebook? Um, well, first of all, we had no good ideas, so thank he said, we better keep running Facebook. Um, and Did you think that was the right call? Yeah. The money wasn't the exciting part. Mm. Mark was excited about building the company, and so um, that was the right thing for him. But that's when you realized, wow, we're going to have a lot of wealth, Yeah. and, and I don't want to spend it all on us. We do not need that. What we And so we knew then that 
if that wealth ever materialized, mm -hmm. we were going to give it all back to um, building, doing our part in building a future for all of our kids. Part of the mission here is um, cure or help prevent all diseases in your lifetime. Is that is that? Technically, in our children's lifetime, but yes. Look, most people would look at that and say, no way is that possible. You see it differently. Well, one, if you look backwards, we have made incredible progress in the next past 80 years. Antibiotics weren't a thing until the past 80 years. And that's incredible because so, so many lives are saved because of that. So if you look forward, what can we do in the next 80 years? Like, we shouldn't even be able to imagine that today. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, like I said before, we are not doing this alone. And n no single effort of ours is going to cure, prevent, or manage all disease. We are tiny. Philanthropy is so small in comparison to what we spend in our healthcare system, what the NIH does in funding research. So we need to be really selective and thoughtful about how we contribute to the space. And for us at CZI, it's really about, in addition to investing, building tools. Half of our organization are in the technology department and they build tools to help make scientists better. Um, examples of that include um, the Human Cell Atlas. This is actually yes. one of my favorite examples. So the Human Cell Atlas, it hopefully will be the next human genome project where we're able to actually sequence the trillions of cells in your body so that we know what is going on when you're healthy in your body and what to do when you get sick. Just this year, um, we discovered a new lung cell type that's, that's in your lungs. We didn't know it existed. While that's interesting, it actually has enormous implications for health because it's involved in uh, the disease cystic fibrosis. All of our treatments and all everything that we do around cystic fibrosis before we discovered this cell type was around a different cell. Mm. And we just didn't know that there was another contributor to the disease. And now that we know that, that's a whole nother target mm. for developing treatment and making lives better. How do people describe you that way, that this is so much more than a job for you? Is it? It's my way of making the world better, a little bit better every day. And I need that. You could have waited. You're not even 35 years old. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, when, when, when people, you know, uh, the Giving Pledge, for example, Warren Buffett and the Gates, they're a lot older than you when they set this up. And you and Mark are obviously a part of it. But you're not even 35 years old, but you felt this urgency, it seems, to do this now, to commit 99% of your wealth to this, to commit all of your professional time to this. Why, why the urgency? Why now? Because this is so hard. This work is so hard, and we've seen through the efforts of folks who've come before us, including everyone you just named, and the Giving Pledge, that it's not easy. And we have a lot to learn and hopefully a lot to give. And, but if we wait till the end of our lives, we miss out on the opportunity to be a part of the solution, to learn and to get better at what we do. So we're sitting in Palo Alto, mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, and there are a lot of people here who have made a lot of money very young. Are you sending a message to them? Do you think the wealthiest in Silicon Valley need to do even more? in terms of giving back? I think everyone has an opportunity to give back. I think we need to th think about giving back as much beyond the dollars. Like, some of the most impactful work we're able to do here is through the efforts of our technology team. Mm -hmm. People who write code, people who build tools, like, those team members are giving them back in a way that's unique and differentiated to them and really making an impact. You're working in the Boys and Girls Club in your community. There are so many ways to give back, and especially when people have such unique skills, giving back in a way that suits them. It's not just about writing the check. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure that you're bringing your full self and your full skill set to being part of the solution. CZI is not just about science and you know preventing or curing disease. Um, you work in criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that work and, really? and why that was so important to you? When we think about the fact that 
a lot of people have untapped potential, you have to think we lose a lot of that in the 2.3 million people that are incarcerated in our country. Mm-hmm. It just has to be. And so many of the people in our criminal justice system lost the opportunity to contribute in a meaningful way in our society before they were ever given a chance. And we think that we need to make sure that folks have the opportunity to actually contribute in a way that is meaningful to them and makes our communities better and stronger. And um, this became very concrete and real to me when Mark and I visited San Quentin Prison. I was wondering, what did you see there? It's an astonishing place. Um, And we visited a coding class um, where folks were teaching themselves how to code with no internet. That's a really hard thing to do. Can you do that? Yes. Um, but they, one person had built this phenomenal data visualization that he stood up and showed us and we're really excited. And the next time I saw that person was in this office. What happened? I was not involved in this, um, but he was released after serving his uh, term. Uh-huh. And he had built up a skill set while in San Quentin on how to code, and he became a technical program manager. He got hired here? He works here. Do you remember his name? His name's Ali Tambora. He works on the criminal justice team as a technical program manager. Wow. Ali got lucky. Yeah. How do we make it so that other people can Hmm. serve their time Mm -hmm. and make sure that um, there's justice, and then come back as contributing members of society? More from my exclusive interview with Dr. Priscilla Chan after the break. Do you, whether you like it or not, a lot of people know your name and a lot of people want to talk to you. And I wonder, Priscilla, if that, uh, you know, pseudo-celebrity status is hard for you, if you welcome it, if you detest it. What is it to you? Um... I'm basically in denial, (laughs) and um, my dream would be to be on the front lines, in the clinic, in the classroom, um, working with kids and families every day. You don't love the spotlight. I don't love the spotlight. I'm here because people told me it'd be good for CZI. Never been that candid with me in an interview. People should know, by the way, we met in the bathroom. Both of us oh, yeah. talked about how exhausted we were uh, over our kids, uh-huh. and we're changing in the bathroom stalls for the interview. That's right. So even billionaires change in bathroom stalls. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about CZI and the and the setup. Um, uh, CZI gives to charity, obviously. Uh, invest in for-profit companies. How do you determine, Priscilla, what companies CZI should back? And is there anything disqualifying for you? For our venture investments? Right. Is that what you're asking? We have a core thesis of how we want um, education for our students to ch- evolve. We want to see really a lot of work in thinking around the whole child. We want to see how students can progress and learn in a way that best suits them. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have a strategy around that and we invest in things that align. So our first question on investments is, is it a good investment? Mm -hmm. Actually, that's not our first question. Um, Your first question is? (laughs) Our first question is, is it it aligned with our strategy? Mm -hmm. And then we ask ourselves, is this really a company? Um, Because we think about companies as good ways to make sure that the good ideas are sustained. Mm. Um, Some things require philanthropic support and uh, government support, and those live in the public sector. Things that are in the private sector um, work well if there is actually a business behind it that will allow it to scale to meet the needs of many. Um, And so we are thoughtful of whether or not it is a true investment and that the company and the business is a scaling mechanism. What about politics, political candidates? Has CZI donated to any political campaigns or politicians? We work in the advocacy space around issue areas that we have uh, made commitments to. So we've made uh, contributions to groups working on criminal justice reform and immigration and housing. 
Uh, and we think about it as a mechanism to actually scale our efforts to actually reach the lives of so many that are in need. Like I said, we're tiny, but the groups and organizations that are both set the regulations and incentives for us to create change in all these areas that we care about are oftentimes uh, in the government level. And so we p participate and support um, efforts in those areas, but always in a bipartisan way. We don't see ourselves as political. So not directly to candidates. No. Because as, as you know, uh, it's been written about that, that, it, that CCI is an LLC, which, which would allow it to function and to donate to politicians with fewer disclosures. Um, do you foresee a day when CCI may back candidates? Or do you say that's not where we are, not what we want to do? We don't, I don't see ourselves doing that because what we do want to work on mm -hmm. is around issues and we want to stay focused on that. I'd like to talk a little bit about family and kids. Um, you've been pretty open. You and Mark have been pretty open about what you face and the challenge you face in getting pregnant. Now you have two healthy kids. Mm -hmm. You said there are really dark moments and I know a lot of people and have a number of friends who are going through those dark moments and I think it's something we don't talk about enough mm -hmm. publicly. What do you want those couples to know and, and why have you spoken out publicly about this? I think when you're going through the moments that are truly heartbreaking and devastating, you think you're the only one going through it and everyone else's lives are going just fine. And I remember feeling that way. Everyone else are having the kids that they want, are not having any health issues. I'm the only one going through this and there must be something wrong with me um, and I don't know how to get out of this situation. Um, and when I started just whispering to friends about it, I realized immediately that it wasn't true and that it, issues around family and health are incredibly common mm -hmm. and others are going through it, but also feeling just as alone and scared as I was in those moments. And that's when I realized if I could just say it out loud and not whisper, many other people would be able to at least see mm -hmm. one other person that's feeling the same pain that they are. And, and you said it was the birth of your first Max, your daughter Max, that made you realize the future is now. Mm -hmm. How has being a parent, and as a parent I ask this with such a broad lens, but how has being a parent changed you? Well, um... Minus the sleepless nights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wake up two times at night, so that's different. <laughs> Me too. Um, it makes you realize that the important things are limited. Like, there's a lot of stuff that just washes away and that really working to make sure that your family is healthy and um, safe mm -hmm. is so important. And that resonates so deeply with me because I try to walk in the shoes of folks who don't have the opportunities that my family has or my children have. Right. And how scary and nerve wracking that might feel and it, it just reminds me that we, it is, being a parent is just the, the most universal human condition. And um, there's, we have to make it easier and better for people to feel like their kids have the right opportunities. Mark has called it a moral responsibility. What will tell you we've succeeded in this? I think that we have a lot of goals that we want to achieve in the next year or two. But the way we'll know if we've succeeded is if we have a deep understanding of what our role is and what we can do with our technology and advocacy teams. And also that in 20 years, those long-term bets we put, we've made create a future that is more fantastic than we could ever imagine. And um, our kids are like, what did you used to do? <laughs> um, and I think that's 
totally possible. Let's talk about education because this is an area where it seems like no amount of money has been able to move the needle enough for kids in this country. Um, and you guys are, are trying. You've said our current systems, even if they are wildly successful, do not prepare kids, frankly, for the real world and, and for real jobs. And um, Mark spoke to the New Yorker, I believe it was a few years ago, 2014, and he talked about your year teaching in San Jose, I think, right? And that, and that people acted, Priscilla, like you were doing charity, like you were doing this hero's work, which it is hero's work. And, and you know, and he said that he realized that you were going to have more of an impact than a lot of the people who were in jobs making a lot more money. But still, society does not value teachers like that. And I wonder why you think that is, and if you think that will ever change. I mean, why is it that the teachers are not compensated, for example, in the way that so many people in other professions are when they are such a lifeline for our children? I think we don't understand how complicated of an art it is, mm. and we don't have an understanding of what it means to be a great teacher um, because it, there's so many aspects to it. Um, there's understanding how kids learn and how to address a student's need with learning disabilities to making sure that you deeply connect mm -hmm. with um, a child who's having a hard time in school and, or a hard time socially. The, the needs that you need to fill as a teacher are so vast. Um, and we don't know how to know when a teacher is doing that, and we don't acknowledge that it's all within the purview of a student, a teacher. A teacher stands in front of 30 students in a classroom, and for every kid, she needs to have a different to-do list of what needs to happen for that kid to be successful. Um, and I would love to see a world where we acknowledge that we give teachers support and tools to achieve that, and we understand how to measure her progress against her goals. You and Mark have donated $120 million to Bay Area schools around San Francisco, around this area. You made a famous investment of $100 million in schools in Newark. Um, what was learned from the Newark investment? The Newark investment has made such an imprint on our DNA here at CZI because we learned this incredibly important lesson of being patient. We are now almost seven years out from the New York investment and we're seeing really exciting results. Mm. We are seeing that the high school graduation rate has gone up 18%. In Newark, New Jersey. In Newark, New Jersey. In the public schools there. Exactly. So, that is incredible. So people, you know, a lot's been written about it. Books have been written about this. Yes. And it's been widely reported uh, in many ways as, as a failure. Yeah, you don't see it that way. People wrote books and did retrospectives three or four years in. This work is not work that is going to fully play out in three or four years. Mm -hmm. It takes time. And so if you're willing to make those long-term bets, you can't come back and look mm -hmm. three years later. You have to know what the milestones are to hold yourself accountable at year three and year four. Mm -hmm. But the full impact is still playing out um, and will continue to play out over the next decade. And um, the lesson I want us to learn here at CZI is yeah. hold yourself accountable, but know that to really understand the full impact of your work, you're just gonna need to be patient. I want you to take me back, if you will, for a moment, because you work with your husband here, which cannot be easy. How is that to work with one's husband? Well, it's changed. <laughs> Um, I would say at the beginning, it was like, have you ever assembled IKEA furniture? It is, yeah, I'm glad I'm still married after yeah, that. Yeah, we've definitely <laughs> gone through moments like that. Uh, but we're really in a place where we understand each other's, what drives the other person, what the other person's strengths are, and where you need to give them constructive feedback. And it's really hard to do that as Mark's wife, but it is not hard to do that as Mark's partner in this work. And so we're very careful about when we are each other's family mm -hmm. and when we are each other's partners. Can you share with me one thing you taught him or that constructive feedback and one thing he taught you here? Mark is always teaching me to take a step back mm -hmm. and ask the 
strategic framing question of why are we doing this? What is the ultimate goal? Um, before I jump into sort of how we're going to operationalize or build something. Um, and that is so helpful for me because I'm a fixer. I just want to go in and fix the problem. Me too. Um, My husband says pop the big bubbles, not the little ones. Yeah. I try. <laughs> uh, something I've taught Mark, I well, I've taught him a lot of science. You've uh, taught Mark a lot of science. Yeah. <laughs> and um, both directly and making sure that I am like, I don't think Mark knows this. Will someone explain it to him? Because people don't want to uh, sure, approach. Ass- don't assume that, like, you know this. I'm not going to explain it to you. Mm. And really making sure that we're building an environment here right. where everyone feels free to ask questions of what they don't know. Is it true that you told him you would not start working with him until he taught in a classroom? He was stealing my stories. <laughs> he was telling stories about being in the classroom or um, or being in uh, in the after school program or communities and he was giving me credit they were my stories right. but he would tell them in a group and I was like okay this is enough if you think that this is interesting and important you should go do it yourself did as he? Well. he did he went and taught yeah we he taught a, a class in the boys and girls club uh, in East Palo Alto mm. And he, we, he taught a class on entrepreneurship. And uh, let's see, six years later, we still mentor for the kids mm-hmm. uh, from the program. So if you guys hadn't been at that frat party waiting in line for the bathroom mm-hmm. at Harvard, a lot of this may never have happened. Uh, Can you take me back to that day for a moment? <laughs> sure. <laughs> we met... Um, we met at a party at Harvard in Fort Simer's house where his friends were throwing him a party because they were worried he might get kicked out of school. <laughs> I was there because I was a wing uh, woman for a friend who was dating someone else at that party. Yeah. Um, but our real first date was when we... Uh, our real first date was about a week later. Okay. And we had gone out to have hot chocolate and... He, the date was going well, and then he said, I'm really enjoying this. Would you like to go watch a movie? I have a take-home midterm, but I'd rather th- do that instead. I was completely devastated. Why? Because I was like, huge red flag. This guy's not doing his homework. <laughs> He's not going to amount to anything. Clear, and, clearly. Clearly. I was so upset, and like I thought, well, I just... I should just go home and I declined because I told him to go do his homework really and and he thought that she's not interested in me because she doesn't want to go watch a movie after getting hot chocolate and I thought well I am having fun and even if he doesn't achieve very much because he's slacking I might as well enjoy this evening (laughs) Um, and so I did say yes and the rest is history is it true that he said at the frat party, we need to go out like tomorrow because I think I'm getting kicked out of this school. He did say that. It's <laughs> a good thing you did. Yeah. What has it been like for the two of you? He has built Facebook. You went through medical school, your residency, you taught. Now you're leading here at CZI. You got, you know, you were on the Time 100 list a few years ago, all before you're 40 years old. I just, I mean, does the pressure ever get to you? I think the only way to approach work like this is to hope that you're doing something that makes the world a little bit better every day. So I just take it one bit at a time. Really? The only way to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. I suppose. After the 2016 election, Priscilla, you said, we're trying to figure out where the Trump administration policies are going to be and how we can work together. What have you found? We found that there's just there's a lot going on right now and we need to be focused on our core areas of work. And so we have remained deeply committed to our work in immigration and the pathway to success is changing, um, but we're always trying to look for the opportunity where we continue to move the ball forward. There continues to be people interested um, in all, from all different backgrounds and groups in this issue and Um, Right now, we've found that some of our efforts are really needed at the front lines. And so we did send our team to the border to help um, 
address some of the immediate needs children and families had. And so we, our work and our strategy will zigzag um, with the ultimate goal of really making sure that we're moving towards uh, reforming the immigration system. What is the number one thing uh, on that topic? What is the number one thing that you think that the administration can do right now to help the children most in need? I'm not sure. I think we need to make sure that we really are taking care of the kids um, who are in limbo in a way that um, we would want to take care of our own children. And as the child of immigrants in this country, how do you feel about the way that immigrants are being talked about, the rhetoric used and, and treated in this country as a whole right now? And what would you like to see? I'm just so inspired by the work and efforts of the people that welcomed my family to this country 30 years ago now, more than 30 years ago. And that everything that I'm able to achieve is a mm -hmm. downstream effect of families, churches, um, communities that said, you need a safe place to be, like we can be that for you. Of being welcome. Yes. And I am forever in debt and willing to fight for what I feel like is an extremely um, American value. And I just, I think that's what makes this country great. Are those tears of joy and feeling pretty lucky? I feel pretty grateful. Okay, lightning round. Have you ever done this? I've uh, never seen you do this. It's like you get like one word answers, basically. Okay, yeah, this seems hard. All right, lightning round with Priscilla Chan. Android or iPhone? Android. Who cooks? You or Mark? I cook what we eat. <laughs> and he cooks meat, I hear. He cooks meat and I would say he, uh, everything that we're experimenting on. <laughs> Parenthood is, finish the sentence. An adventure. Mm -hmm. Who changes more diapers? Oh, um, I change more diapers. Mark believes he's faster. Okay. What keeps you up at night, other than the crying babies? <laughs> um, making sure that I'm making the right choices and doing the right thing for CZI. Who loves Beast the dog more? Mark. <laughs> <laughs> After you have children, the dog is like, well, who is that? It's true. <laughs> Who's your hero? I'm deeply inspired by my family. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also really inspired by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The woman is slow and steady and thoughtful and like, I'm not even talking about her work as a Supreme Court Justice. I'm talking about the work she did for equal rights. As a lawyer at the ACLU. So impressive. So I'd like to meet Ruth one day. I got to interview her four days after having my second child. And I will tell you all about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't say no to that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, what makes a good leader? Listening. Okay, final question. Facebook or Instagram? Facebook. I'm Instagram. Thanks, Priscilla. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN.